You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. Right, New City family, let's open the book together. Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're going to spend our time today. This passage is the anthem of the Christian faith in many ways, and so excited to dig into it with you. Ephesians chapter 2, once you make it there, can I ask you to go ahead and stand in reverence for the reading of God's word today, and we will dig in to this text. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, it says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, it was 2007. Um, I remember I was in Ridgecrest, North Carolina on a university campus there. Um, I was attending something called Fuge Camp. Did anybody ever go to Fuge Camp? Anybody? No Fugers? We had a couple in the first uh, first service. It's a, a deep brotherhood. Not really so much, but anyway, um, it's, a, it's a summer camp. And so I... Um, I if you would have looked at my life growing up, I was a I was a moral kid. Like nobody would have looked at me and gone, Nick is headed down a path toward destruction. All right, I was. Um, I like to jokingly say I was the kid that moms really liked, but girls not so much. Like they um, they were like, this he's just a good guy, just a good young man, right? And so I I had this really public appearance of kind of morality, and I wanted to maintain that reputation. I grew up in a small town, and so like um, Bible knowledge, that kind of thing sort of purchase you some street cred in a way. And so I wanted to maintain that reputation, but I remember distinctly that um, I'm preparing to go to this church camp, and I think this is the perfect situation for me because I can get there and I can flirt with girls and there are no consequences. Like if I get there and I meet somebody, whatever happens, we're never going to see each other again. This isn't going to come back negatively on my reputation. So this gives you a glimpse as to what's actually going on in my heart. Do you see the picture here? It's like there's this external moral reality and then there's this internal thing that's really anything but. And so I'm going to camp and I'm, this, this is my mission, right? I'm looking to do this. And I remember distinctly one of the nights of the camp, 
There's this gentleman from Nashville, Tennessee preaching. I don't remember his name. I need, I need to find this guy. He was bald and from Nashville. So if you know anybody from Nashville who's bald, it might, it might be him. So if you could introduce us, that would be great. But I remember distinctly, he is preaching the gospel the message of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, that you are a sinner who needs a savior. And this is a message I have heard literally a thousand times in my life. I've heard it over and over and over and over. But for the first time, I heard it. Like I hear the words, you are, a, those words specifically stood out to me. You are a sinner who needs a savior. And it was the first time deep in my soul, I went, uh-oh. That's not a concept that I explain to make people think that I'm cool or religious or moral. No, no, no. This is my reality. I need a savior. I need him to get me. And I'm telling you, out of that moment, while you could have looked at the outside of my life and said, not a lot changed, right? I didn't go from, I, I wasn't on this dark, deplorable path. No, I looked like a moral kid, but something changed. Here's what changed. I loved him. I loved God and I, I wanted to know him. I wanted other people to know him. And that was new. It was like a light switch flipped on inside of me. All of a sudden I wanted to read this book, not so I could talk about it in my small religious town. No, I wanted to read it because I wanted to know the God that these scriptures revealed. This was the moment of what the Bible might call conversion for me. Do you remember the moment? Like if you're a follower of Jesus in the room, there may have been a process leading up to it, but there was a moment in which you said, you confessed out loud that Jesus is Lord of the universe and I am not Lord of the universe. And that's really good news. Conversion, I think I want to give you a definition today. What we're talking about, this is from Wayne Grudem. I think it's helpful. Um, he says, conversion is our willing response to the gospel call in which we sincerely repent of our sins and place our trust in Christ for salvation. Notice that it's, it's response to the gospel message and there's sincerity, right? It's not like, I know this is the right thing to do, but there is this heart level acknowledgement that I need Jesus. See, conversion is not merely an intellectual decision. It's not less than that, right? I, I believed intellectually that Jesus was Lord in that moment. But more than that, more fundamentally than that, it is the transferring of your worship and dependence from whatever you are worshiping and depending on to worshiping and depending on the true God of the universe. And another way to say it is it's putting your weight on Jesus, now, you know what it means to put your weight on something because you do it all the time. Do you know actually you're doing it right now? You are trusting that the chair beneath you, you weren't thinking about, but now you're thinking about, you're like, is this chair okay? Is this good? You are trusting that that chair is going to hold up under the weight of your body and keep you from crashing into the ground. You're putting weight on it. When you put weight on Jesus, this is where you are saying all the promises of God in salvation, that he is going to sustain me and keep me and transform me. And that he is the one whose, whose goodness is going to carry me into the presence of the father forever. All those promises, when you are um, converted, you are believing that he is going to keep those promises. That's what's happening. 
That's what conversion is. But I want you to notice this morning what I didn't say conversion is. Conversion is not you learning to act a certain way. Like, listen, if you're converted to Christ, is he going to change you? Yes. Is he going to mess with your desires and your, uh, your life? A hundred percent. He is going to transform you from one degree of glory um, to another. But, but I'm talking right now about some of us who are walking into an environment like this and we walk in thinking, yeah, I'm saved because I go to church. Or I'm saved because I, I have Christian parents. I grew up in a Christian home. But here's the thing about conversion. Christian conversion demands an individual response to Jesus. Here's what's scary. I'll tell you this because I love you. Do you know you can do Christian things and not be a Christian? You know that, right? Had a several years back, I had a professor start a seminary class with this illustration. It's always stood out to me. He said, I want you to picture for a moment um, a man and his deaf son. Okay, so the son can't hear anything. And the, the father is sitting in the living room and he sits down in a chair. He puts his headphones in and he presses play. The Rolling Stones start playing and he, uh, he starts to nod his head, right? Starts to tap his foot. He starts mouthing along with the words of the song. And then his son peeks around the corner into the living room and sees what's happening. And he's confused, right? Because he's never heard music. But pretty soon he starts watching his dad and he kind of quietly comes up and sits down in the chair next to his dad and he starts to tap his foot. And he starts to nod his head and pretty soon he's even mouthing the lyrics. And pretty soon you would look at each of them and you would not know which one of those people was responding to the music and who was just mimicking dance steps. The same thing happens in the church, right? You can learn what, how Christians behave, what Christians say, what Christians think, and you can do the dance steps, but that is a far different thing than responding to the music of the gospel and being transformed by the work of, the, of Jesus from the inside out. Here's why this matters so much. Why it matters so much for you and why it matters so much for us, like us as a church. Number, number one, Teaching you how to be nice without making sure you're new, look at me, is spiritual endangerment. Like if I got up here every week and I gave you five tips to being a good boy or a good girl, but that was disconnected from realizing that you need a savior, that you couldn't be good enough to earn his salvation, guess what? That's spiritual endangerment because you learn how to act, but you are not transformed by the power of the gospel. You would eventually, at least on the outside, become nearly imperceptible in your behaviors from the Christians around you, and you would eventually see little to no need for Jesus. That's dangerous, you need to know here at New City, like membership, it is not for nice people or wealthy people or poor people or good people or black people or white people. It is for people who have said, I need Jesus. It's for all kinds of people. And for some of you, you may hear a statement like that. Well, yeah, like, yeah, church membership is for Christians. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Why would you even want to be a member of a church if you weren't? 
a Christian. You see, the reason we here at New City, we even do a membership process. So one of the things, if you want to become a member, you'll meet with one of our pastors and and get to hear your story. And you need to know this, that membership interview is not so we can determine if you're good enough to be a member of New City Church. It's merely to know, is there fruit of God's spirit at work in your life? Like, have you experienced conversion? Do you belong to Jesus? Do you want to actually turn from your sin and turn toward him a little bit more every day, however imperfectly? Like, I want you, I want you to know something. If you're here this morning, I want you to know this. If you're coming in and you're going, man, I hear you talking about conversion and belonging to Jesus. And I'm telling you right now, I know that ain't me. Like, I know that's not me. I want you to know that we are so glad that you're here. Like, so grateful. I hope you have come in this morning. I hope you have felt welcomed and wanted and loved by the people here. I Sincerely, I want that for you. But I'm going to be honest with you for a second because I love you. You are going to hit a ceiling in your ability to connect with these people and ultimately to God if you don't know Jesus yet. There is a level of fellowship and belonging that comes only by belonging to the king. Why is that the case? Well, it's because of what this text in, that we just read said to us. Because in verse 1, it says, we are dead in our sins and trespasses. And right now, if you don't know Jesus, that's still your story. See, in uh, John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus says this, unless one is born again, one is converted, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If that's you, man, I got good news for you. Here it is. The gospel of Jesus is the most inclusive, exclusive offer of all time. Let me say that again to you. The the gospel of Jesus is the most inclusive, exclusive offer of all time. It is exclusive in the fact that Jesus is the only one who can save you. Nobody else can do that. There is no other being or Lord in the universe who can carry you from death to life. Only Jesus can do that. You have to know Jesus. But here's where it gets inclusive. Whoever will believe... Whoever will bow their knee to the king and say your way and not my way, get this, he will never cast you out. Never. And this passage, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, it's this story, y'all. It's a story of conversion. In some sense, this is the journey of every Christian ever. It describes what conversion actually looks like. So for some of you in the room, you need to be asking today as we walk through this passage, is this my story? Like, have I experienced conversion? And if, if not, like, do you need to be saved today? Others of you, you're walking in the room and honestly, you belong to Jesus and you need to recover the joy of your salvation. Like, man, you are, you are living in the, ro- the beautiful Rocky Mountains of God's grace. Can I get an amen from our central Illinois crowd? The Rocky Mountains are beautiful, right? You're living in the mountains of God's grace, but you've lost the wonder. You've lost the glory of it. And so you, you need to get clarity. You need to see it again. And, and then some of you still yet in the room, like, you need to ask this question, like, how do I actually invite someone else to believe the gospel? 
Like the book of Romans, it says, how will they believe if no one has preached? And so how do I actually invite someone, give them the invitation to experience conversion, that, that neighbor, that coworker, that friend, that person? And so the main point of our text today as we walk this through, this conversion story, is God's grace saves us from God's wrath for good works. God's grace saves us from God's wrath for good works. That's what we're going to flesh out from Ephesians chapter 2 today. All right, let's start the sermon. I'm kidding. That was all part of the sermon. Point number one, God's wrath toward us is real. Read with me again in verse 1. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay, let's stop there for a second. Paul just called us children of wrath. That's that's pretty harsh, right? That's, and it's not a cool band name. <laughs> this is our state of reality right here before our conversion. Can, can we admit that in, uh, particularly in the West, we are wildly uncomfortable with the idea of God having wrath? Like that God would have white hot seething anger towards something makes us all a little bit nervous, right? And, and in one sense, it's like we're, we're looking at these tensions where we're going, God says he loves, but yet how can he have wrath? How can you have love if you don't have wrath? Like wrath is actually the evidence of God's love. I, I digress, that's for another sermon. But I want you to notice here, God's wrath makes us really uncomfortable. I, uh, Earlier this week, I, I, Mass Confession's good for the soul, so I'll just tell you, I got sucked down the YouTube wormhole. Has this happened to anybody before, right? Where you, you start, you're like, I'll oh, just watch a quick video, I got a minute. And then you look up and you're like, what day is it, right? <laughs> and so I'm, I'm working my way down the, um, the YouTube wormhole, and somehow some light watching before I went to sleep, I stumbled upon sentencing videos from people who had committed horrible crimes against humanity. Just a really just a light, fun video before you go to sleep, right? But it was so fascinating because you're getting these people who have done horrible things. I mean, they have, they've murdered, the, like terrible, the, the worst things you can imagine they have done. And it's the video of the judge reading the sentence and sentencing them to life in the prison or worse. And so as I'm watching these videos, and this, this is probably part dysfunction, but I think there's something holy in this too. I'm watching these videos, and at no point am I going, man, I just feel really sorry for that guy. I feel like I could fix him if you gave me a minute with it. No, no, I'm like, yeah, absolutely. You've, you have stolen innocence. You have robbed life from another person. Of course you deserve justice. Now, when we think about God's wrath or this ultimate sense of justice, we really like justice for that guy who has murdered a bunch of people, but we don't like to think about God's justice for ourselves, right? It's like, but I'm not that bad. Well, Paul fleshes it out. Why that view that this guy deserves judgment, but not me is very problematic. Here's why. Did you notice the text says you were dead? 
Now, Paul is not a moron. He knows you are biologically alive. He's saying you are spiritually dead. Why are you spiritually dead? The text tells us you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Your sins, your trespasses against God have brought you into spiritual death. I grew up in Southern Illinois and, uh, and I deer hunted like crazy. Okay. This is how I grew up. So almost every day after school, I'd keep my gear in, uh, the back of my truck. And so I'd head straight out. And there was one place in particular that I hunted where I had a tree stand, but about 40 yards away, there was a no trespassing sign. And it's like right on the other side of that no trespassing sign, that's where all the action was, okay? It was like a deer super highway. Um, and so I remember distinctly, I was like, well, maybe I'll, I'll just bring my climber stand one day and I'll see if I can get a little bit closer. And, and so I got a little closer, but I remember a day came where I'm like, I'm looking at the line and I'm like, maybe I'll just go right past it, okay? I'll go right past it. And if somebody comes, I'll be like, man, I didn't even see the sign. That's crazy. I'm so sorry. I would never do that. Give me a break. And so I, without even thinking about it, I walk onto this other property and begin to hunt. And so what's interesting is that if there was a person standing there at the barrier edge, I would be like, I don't even know why you have to put that no trespassing sign up. I would never walk on your property. That's terrible. But when nobody's watching, it's easy, right? It's as easy as breathing. And that's what spiritual death is like. You are in those trespasses. Trespassing, sinning comes as easy to us as blinking. Our guilt has spiritually killed us. And once you are spiritually dead, here's the really bad news. You can't do anything about it. What can a dead thing do? Nothing. The text then goes on to say, that we are following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, following the course of this world. It is like um, anti-God anti behavior or anti-God way of living or being is essentially what Paul is, is getting at right here. A way to sort of conceptualize this. Have you ever been on an interstate and you're using GPS and it's like, okay, my exit, it's in 500 feet, 400 feet, 300 feet, 200 feet, make a U-turn, right? You've missed the exit. And as you drive down the road, right, you see all these no U-turn signs and there are police parked there. But even if there wasn't a cop, you would never take a U-turn, right? You would never do that kind of a thing. And, and so, or the interstate's completely blocked and there's just no way to turn around. That's what it's like being stuck following the course of this world. Like you are in the stream with the grain of the world in a way that you can't escape. But then he goes on to say this, it's very interesting. You are following the prince of the power of the air. That is a reference to the devil. It is a great enemy of God's people and the church. See, when we think of like badness or wrongness, we tend to think of it as something passive. We don't think about it of like, I'm actually actively fighting for the other team. But that's the way scripture describes it right here. We are following the prince of the power of the air. The text says, this reality we all once 
lived in this way. All of us. Now, I want to give you a basic Greek grammar lesson so you can feel smart at parties sometimes. Be like, actually, the Greek there. You know what all means in Greek? It means all. <laughs> Every one of us. All means all. This is not just the worst few of us. This is every one of us. All of us have become dead in our sins and trespasses. All of us were at one time or are currently running against God's design for the world. And he goes on to describe it as carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Here's what that means. At one time or another, every one of us were our own God. We called the shots, right? Whatever we wanted or directed or felt or desired, we did, we walked toward. But here's the problem with that. The literal first commandment that God gives his people is you shall have no other gods before me. You follow me. It's the first commandment. This, this one almost, it makes me like sad laugh a little bit, right? It's literally the first commandment, you guys. We didn't even make it down the list. It wasn't like, hey, I put up a solid four. We did it. We made it to six. You made it to seven? That's amazing. No, no, no. Number one, level one, have no other gods before me, and we have broken God's law. What does all this mean? Because right now, all this could feel a bit heaped on as Paul is walking us through this. Here's what it means. We have broken both God's law and God's heart. And in doing so, we have broken relationship with God. And because of this, instead of being children of his love as we are designed to be, we have become children of his wrath. Here's the thing. You can't receive the good news until you accept the bad news. Like, think about it for a minute. If you're not a sinner, you don't need a savior. Often when we talk about becoming a follower of Jesus, we talk about the benefits of the gospel. And don't get me wrong, we should talk about the benefits of the gospel. Like, does Jesus offer us purpose and hope and identity? Absolutely. Yes and amen. All of those things are true and wonderful. But if all we talk about is the benefits of the gospel, if a person never knows they're lost, how in the world do they actually get found? There may be some of you in the room right now and you're exploring Christianity. Like you're, you're here and you're looking over the fence of this thing and the world wants to sell you a version of the Christian story that says it ends, it begins and ends with the wrath of God. So they'll talk about the teaching of the Christian church and say something like, basically what Christians believe is that God is really mad and you better be good or he's gonna kill you if you're not and this is a wrong view of the teaching for multiple reasons. Number one, and mainly because our attempts to be good enough to stop God's wrath from coming toward us, you know what that's like? It is as feeble as a spider's web against a falling rock. You ever seen that, right? What can a spider's web do against a falling rock? Nothing. Nothing. It's completely feeble attempt. You cannot be good enough. The gospel is not. Come try harder. The gospel is about someone who has come and stepped in on your behalf. That's the good news. 
And my friends, here is where it gets both complicated and really good. What can be done when the sin that God's that God hates, that he feels white-hot wrath toward, has infested the people that he loves. What can be done? I got good news for you, and this is point number two. God's grace toward us is a gift. It's a gift. Read with me in verse four. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Let's stop there for a moment. But God, these words pierce through the darkness. These are like the words in the very beginning when God says, let there be light and creation comes forward from nothing. The words, but God, have a similar effect on the dead human soul. It brings life where there was no life. These are the most significant words of all. God has intervened with our situation. Did you notice that the Bible right here says that God made us alive together with Christ? This is the heart of the good news. It's that the eternal son of God, Jesus, he became one of his own creation. Like the God who has been worshiped forever, put on human flesh, isn't that below his dignity? Of course it is, but yet he did it. And though he came and he never sinned, not even one time, he perfectly obeyed the law, even though he never ever sinned. He took all of God's wrath and anger that should rightly be pointed at you and me. And guess what? He took all of it on his own shoulders. And he is so strong and so capable that he takes all that wrath on himself. He goes into the grave. He dies. He dies the death that our sin demanded. Three days later, he gets up out of the grave. Blood flows through his veins once again. His heart returns to beating. He is in a resurrection body to never die again. Don't miss what the Bible just said to you. If you are a Christian in this room, you were made alive with Christ. Like that life that conquered death, that life that woke up from the grave, never to die again, it becomes your life. And get this, it's a gift. It's just a gift. Why in the world does he give it? The text tells us, because of the great love with which he loved us. New city, God has great love immense, massive love. The Bible will go as far as to say in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, that God is love. He's immensely rich when it comes to love. There is no bottom to his resources. To try to kind of give us some perspective on this, this week I, I googled who is the richest person in the world, and currently, as far as we know, it's Elon Musk. And our boy Elon is worth about $250 million. Um, to give you some perspective of what that means, because it's quick to say, but I want you to try to wrap your mind around this. If that's 250,000 
million. Okay, so try, try to wrap your mind around that for a second. He could, let's pretend he could liquidate all of his assets and his stock options, and he just had a pile of cash worth $250 billion. He could give a million dollars to 250,000 people before he ran out of money. There's not 250,000 people in Champaign County. Can you imagine if all of us were millionaires? With, that probably wouldn't go good. I actually, now that I say it out loud, but like if somebody gave you a check for a million dollars right now, what would it change? Change everything. I tell you what, if somebody gives me a check for a lunch or for a million dollars, lunch is on me today, okay? I got you. I'm talking to everybody. Even online, why not? I got a million dollars. But here's the thing. If Elon started giving away his wealth, and he starts giving a million dollars to person after person after person after person after person. At some point, he gets nervous, right? He's like, sheesh. Okay, I got, I got to keep something for myself, right? I'm accustomed to a certain kind of lifestyle. Not so with God. Do you notice what the text says? It says that he raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. His grace and love are bottomless. When he shows grace, mercy, love, and affection to you, and he pours himself out for you and with you, guess what? He is in no sense diminished of his own capacity for love and grace. No, no, no. He is bottomless. He is a fountain of grace that is no less full. And get this, that kind of love is what is poured out on you if you are a Christian. And according to this passage, it's exactly what he plans to do forever for his people. What? It's unbelievable. And some of you need to hear this today. He doesn't change his mind because you had an off day. Because you had an off season. Because you had an off year. Because you walked on a path you knew you shouldn't have walked down. His love keeps his people. There's nothing like it. I want you to read verse 8 in the text with me. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Did you notice that? Faith, belief in the gospel, is a gift. Like if you're in the room and you belong to Jesus, did you actively place your faith in him? Yes, that is 100% true. Did you choose to follow Jesus? Yes, absolutely. Did you um, make an effort of your own will and do that? Absolutely, that's true. But get this, the Bible is saying, even that, even that faith to believe was a gift of God's grace to you. That's unbelievable. Now, when you get a gift, what are you supposed to do? Right, you receive it. You receive a gift. You, you say thank you for the gift. How weird would it be? Think about this for a moment. If you gave a gift to somebody else and they opened it and they were holding it in their lap and they looked back at you and they said, I did a pretty good job receiving this. Like it must have been thrilling for you to watch me open this. You know what I do? 
I'd snatch it and be like, this is mine now, right? I'm, I'm done. <laughs> that would be crazy. See, here's, here, here's the deal. Did you really place your faith in Jesus? Like I said, yes, absolutely you did. But that, that faith is a gift. It, a gift is meant to overwhelm you with the generosity of the giver, not puff you up that you prayed a prayer one time. See, we, I, can we as a church, can we flip the script on how we talk about this moment just a little bit? Like goodness, when we talk about our conversion, we usually say, here's what I did on this day and in this place. Can we flip the script to saying, that's when he got me. Like that's when the miracle happened. It's a miracle that we believe this. Conversion is a miracle. It is not a magic formula that if you say the exact right words in the exact right way, that God will save you. That's actually way more like witchcraft than it is like Christianity. It's an incantation that says if I say the right things in the right order and the right rhythm, God will do what I want him to do. No, no, no. When you prayed that prayer, he'd already got you. And when you realize that, you know what you, you ask? Why me? Why'd you save me? Sheer grace. Conversion is the moment when you are clobbered with the reality that you are a sinner and yet God's grace has covered you. Like, y'all, if you think you don't have a story, if you're a follower of Jesus in the room, can I tell you, you are a walking, breathing miracle. It's a miracle that you went from spiritual death to spiritual life. You didn't earn that. You didn't do that. He did that. How? By his grace. By his grace. Now, this salvation, my friends, it is by grace alone, but make no mistake, it is not alone. It's by grace, but it's going to do some stuff inside of us. That's what verse 10 teaches us, and this is the last point today. God prepared good works for us. Look at verse 10. It says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That word, um, that word workmanship in the Greek is the word poema. It's the word that we get poem from, most literally translated, it's the word masterpiece. Sometimes I read the Bible and I go, it al that almost seems inappropriate. It seems too dignifying. If I'm really as bad of a sinner as the beginning of this passage described, how in the world does God get away with saying, you are my masterpiece? That's beautiful. And you are a masterpiece that has good works for you to walk in. When I read a verse like this in the Bible, one of the questions I try to ask is, why is this here? Like, why does he give us a verse like this? I think there's probably numerous reasons, but it's at least to crush our sense of hopelessness. Like, friend, if you are a Christian, get this, God is writing an iconic story in your specific salvation. He's writing a great story. He has saved you. He has dropped you behind enemy lines into the life that he's given you. And he has good works for you. 
whether you are doing physics, whether you are leading chemistry classes, whether you are designing sets, whether you are working as a nurse, whether you are um, engineering buildings, he has you there with those people and to do those things beautifully to show the world what he is like. Like, man, he's writing an iconic story. As, as Westerners, we hear a verse like that. Okay, he's prepared good works for us. And instead of going, this is awesome, we freak out with anxiety. Because we go, well, what are the specific good works? What's the list? Give me the, sh- so should I take this job or should I take that job? Should I go to this career or that career? Should I marry this person or that? Come here. And you are missing the point. The point is not that you need to figure out this magical code of the exact right things that you should do. It's that you should walk with Jesus, and as you live your life, do good works. And as you do them, you know what they'll be? The good works he had for you. This should not stress you out. This should free you. Because some of you right now, you probably feel stuck. Like you're going to leave this room, and you're going to go home to a marriage that's very difficult. Or you're going to leave and you're going to go to a job where you are overworked and underappreciated. And guess what? You can have a deep sense of purpose in that place as a Christian. God put me here for good works. Can I ask you, my friends, are you, as a follower of Jesus, living with that kind of intention? Are you embracing the reality that God says your life is called to be a masterpiece? Like if you're bored... If you're a bored Christian, man, this is for you. You got to get off the sidelines. Like you got to get in the game. That means the people God has put around you, you know what it's time to do? It's time to try. It's time to try and love. It's time to try and make a disciple. It's time to be relentlessly cheerful in a workplace full of Debbie Downers and cynics. That's a mission worth your life. See, it's, it's also, it's wisdom for us to ask today. If you're in the room and you're going, man, I, I actually don't really care about good works. Like, I don't really care if I become more like Jesus. I'm just here. I want some good advice for my life. If that's where your heart is at, I want you to just in wisdom ask, do I really belong to Jesus? Like ask the Holy Spirit that. He'll be honest with you. He'll be honest with you. Now, in the Christian life, can there be seasons where you're like, man, I'm struggling, or I feel like I'm not walking out my faith? Of course. But if the general disposition of your heart is not to do good works so that we can walk in them and alert others to Jesus, then we need to ask, do we really belong to him? Raphael, you go ahead and come up, my man. I'm almost done. See, these good works that God has called us to walk in, get this, they alert the people around us to the goodness and glory of the king. It is literally God using you to send an invitation to them for their own moment of conversion. It is God saying, hey, I'm going to use your good works and I'm going to use them like a billboard that points this person to me, that draws them in to me. And for some of you, today is the day right now that all of that's going to click. It's all going to click. You're going to realize, oh my gosh, my Christian friend that brought me today 
or the Christians that I've been surrounded by, all that warmth and love, and goodness knows they're not perfect. We are not a perfect bunch, Christians. But all the warmth and love that you've hopefully experienced, finally, the lights are coming on and you're going, oh my gosh, God has been hunting me down through the good works of this person's life. Today, hear this from Jesus. He wants you to know that you are a big sinner, but get this, Jesus is a big savior. So today, stop resisting him. Stop rationalizing away. Today is the day to surrender to the king. If, if that's you, if you're going, oh man, this I need the Lord. Today, as we take the Lord's Supper in a few moments, as we sing, I'm gonna be in the back with some other prayer counselors back there. And we would love to talk with you and process with you what God is doing in your heart right now. Today is the day to believe. For some of you, like you may hear the word today and you are realizing that you have gone to church for years, but somehow you have never actually believed the gospel. You've learned a lot of dance steps, but you have never responded to the music of the gospel. Today is the day of conversion, my friend. Believe the good news. Stop trying to heap up the scales of heaven in your favor with niceness and good works. Throw all of it down and just believe the gospel of God's grace. In just a minute, when we sing and take the supper, I want you to get out of your seat and go talk with a prayer counselor in the back. Pray, invite God's work in your life. And then friends, there are some of us in the room and we've lost the wonder of it all. Like you've lost the wonder of your salvation. I want you to ask the Holy Spirit right now to give you fresh gratitude for what he's done and for him to clarify what are the good works you want me to walk in, God. Go ask one of the prayer counselors to invite the Spirit to minister to you today. And then if you are in the room and you are a follower of Jesus, the last way we can respond together is by all of us taking the Lord's Supper. This is a meal for Christians. And so take the supper today with fresh joy that when you, that broken body and shed blood that you were taking, that Jesus died in your place for your sins. Let's believe the gospel fresh today. You said, this is how you can respond today. I love you and I love being your pastor. I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna respond to God's word together, okay? Heavenly Father, I'm just asking you to move today. Wherever there is resistance to the lordship of Jesus, I'm praying you just break down those walls right now. Bring people from death to life right now. Holy Spirit, we invite you. Jesus, for the, the people in the room who have learned how to behave like a Christian, but they haven't met Jesus, will you introduce yourself right now? Show your face. Draw us in. God, for the people in the room who are weary and need rest, man, they, they've lost the joy of their salvation. And instead of being like a, a kid who's just opened a Christmas present with the gospel, who feels so overwhelmed by the goodness of the gift that they, 
they've just lost the wonder. And this all feels like really hard work without a lot of joy. Right now, restore the joy of our salvation. Lord, you're welcome here. Do good work in this room. Bring us to the right place. In Jesus' name, amen.